I was uh, talking with Rooster about a week or so ago, and we, we were on a lake, uh, just goofing around on a lake, and he was telling me that there is a bridge over in Lake Harding on the Alabama side. I think I have a picture of it. Wait, I'm going to say yes. I do. There it is. Okay, and there's this old railroad truss that is rusted over, and what do people love to do? They, they love to jump off of it, right? It's high and it's rusty. Why wouldn't we do this? It sounds like a great plan. And so that was like common. That was what was happening. And I think Rooster and Lacey, you guys were on your way over. Y'all were about to go and jump off the bridge as well. And somebody from the Department of Natural Resources uh, kind of came up and they were like, you may not want to do that. And it was like, why? I mean, people do it all. The, like, we as adults make the exact same arguments to God that our kids make to us. Like, people do it all the time. It's not that big of a deal, really. And they asked, said, well, a lot of people don't realize it, but when the water is lowered, it's not, the, under there is not what you think is under there. And there were some pictures of when they took the water down. And people are jumping onto this, like, jagged, rusted metal. This one you may not be able to make out uh, because it's a little bright in the room. But there are concrete pylons, and, and everybody does the pencil, right? I mean, nobody's belly flopping off of that thing, and only a couple of people are cool enough to dive, and so that's even worse. And so what happens, this guy comes by, and he says, look, it is not a good idea to jump off, but we can't see it. And so we as adults ask the exact same questions that our kids have asked of us. It is really hard to obey if we don't believe someone. Now, I want to show you one verse. I'm going to pray for us. You want to do some more songs? Forgot your Bible? Good stuff. You can do more songs if you want. Come on up. All right, this is John 3, 36, and it says this. Remember, we're talking about believing helps our ability to obey. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So here we have the word belief. Whoever believes in the Son has life. And then we also have this idea of obedience. Whoever does not obey shall not see life. Now, the statement I'm about to give you is Christianity 101. It is understanding grace. It is gospel. It is what makes Christianity unique. What we do does not save us. But if we are saved, it's going to change what we do. Now, you, you could get that from a Puritan 500 years ago and people way before that. But the most important thing when you open up your Bible to know is that what you do cannot save you. But if we are saved, it legitimately changes what we do. So here's our question for this morning. Do you, and don't do like the Sunday morning Christian thing where we're like, it's Sunday, I'm just, I want you to actually ask yourself this question. Do you live like you believe in the lordship of Jesus? Do you live like you believe that Jesus is legitimately master, ruler, and authority? Stokes, that, that text was so wonderful out of Psalm 17. What was it? Psalm 90? Nine. Okay. Out of, out of Psalm 90, when, when it's like counting our numbers. Is this how it plays out? All of our songs this morning, am I believing God is who he says he is? Because it should change the way that we live. And here's, here's the problem. Most of us feel like we've made enough changes already. And so we're like, right? And, and all we have to do is compare ourselves to someone that makes us feel good about ourselves. God is relentless in changing his people. You didn't go on a mission trip and mark it off the box, right? You, you didn't go through the process of adoption and mark it off the box. You didn't go through cancer and mark it off the box. If we are alive, God is relentlessly making you more like Jesus. And he is not tired of that job. And we should be excited about it. Pray with me, and then we'll look at 
Luke chapter 9 this morning. God, as we open up your word, we are a people who are incredibly valued by being created in your image. And yet many times we live completely contrary to the thing that you would call us to live and to be. And so on the one hand, I pray that we would have the right understanding of grace. We can't do anything to earn salvation, but if it is true in us, it changes what we do. And that wasn't something that happened when we were 12. That change, that sanctification, that work is not something that we got figured out once we got married or had kids or anything else. You relentlessly change your people into your image for your glory and our joy. And I think that's my biggest prayer this morning, God. I don't think anything that I've said is revolutionary to most of the people in this room or at home. But if we believe it, if we recognize that you are not done yet, and that there is something exciting for us, that whatever you call us to leave behind, whatever you call us to let go of, there is something greater in clinging to Christ. Then we would not just out of obligation follow you, but out of great joy and encouragement. I pray all these things for us in Christ's name. Amen. All right, guys, Luke chapter 9, go ahead and flip there. Kiddos, I'm so glad you're here. No matter what the eyes of your parents are telling you right now, I'm very glad that you're here. We got a noisy crew. That's all right. They're not going to bother me a bit. There was a time when there were donkeys making noise and chickens running through, all right? So if if a kid's playing with a toy, then we can handle it. Here's our question. All right, Luke 9, verse 51. I'm about to read something. Are the disciples believing in the lordship of Jesus? Are the disciples in this text believing the lordship of Jesus? Starting in verse 51. When the days drew near for him, being Jesus, to be taken up, it's talking about going to heaven. He's about to die on the cross. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him. Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, eyes up for just a minute. What's happening here? This verse, verse 51 of the ninth chapter of Luke, begins the longest section in the book, the Gospel of Luke. Now, typically we work through books of the Bible, so you may be like, well, why are we in Luke 9? Well, we just finished Exodus last week, and quite honestly, I need a few weeks to prepare First Peter before we dive right in. So I'm just putting a smack dab in the middle of the Gospel. Smack dab in the middle of walking with Jesus. And this begins the biggest section. And what do we see here? Jesus has his face set towards Jerusalem. What that means, the vernacular there means, Jesus steadfastly is looking the cross in the eye. And he is refusing to be assuaded to the left or bumped to the right. He is walking to the cross because his father has called him to that kind of obedience. And because of that, to get to the cross, he has to get to Jerusalem. And the path that he was going to take was going to take him through Samaria. Well, there's a lot of bad blood from the Samaritans and the Jews. Racial tension, political tension, all the stuff we're talking about today, the Bible handles. Like the Bible can handle whatever our world can throw at it. And Jesus begins going through, and the Samaritans are like, nope, if you're going to that place, you're not coming through this place. Here's our question. Are the disciples believing in the lordship of Jesus? Verse 54. And when his disciples... James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Y'all hate 
like being responsive. And I refuse to stop, even though my wife is like, you should stop. It's awkward. So I've made a very easy question, I think. Do we think the disciples are seeing Jesus as Lord? What do you think? I thought it was an easy question. Y'all feel like it's a trick question. What do they call Jesus? They call him Lord, okay? So there are two keys in this passage that cause me to think that, yeah, they are. Now, one thing is Jesus just fed 5,000 people with a little bit of food. So their eyes are open, right? They are glossy-eyed, and they're like, this dude is amazing. I'm going to follow him for the rest of my life, for his life, for however long it is. It is unbelievable to walk and follow Jesus. But as soon as Jesus goes and he encounters people who do not see him the way they do, what's their response? Light them up. Get rid of them. Like, literally, they're like, Jesus, you want me to set this place on fire? And it's not like they were running around with matches. They're saying, like, you want us to call down Sodom and Gomorrah style busted upness on this place. So, yes, I think they are seeing Jesus as Lord. One, they call him Lord. Now, we need to be careful about that because Matthew 7 says that should not ever be our only criteria. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, so a little bit of news. There are no pixie dust sayings that get us into heaven. There there is no, oh, I said the perfect prayer, right? Or I did this. Yes, regeneration and faith come through us responding to the gospel and saying, I need the work of Christ applied to my sin. I can't earn it. I can't do it. I am evil. I am a sinner. I need God to step in. But check out what the rest of the verse says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And these disciples are ready to do God's will. They just happen to not know exactly what it is. You see, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die for the very people who are rejecting him. And they don't realize that. They see their Lord, their master, their authority being treated as less than, and they cannot handle it. That's the right response, quite honestly. But they didn't realize that Jesus was about to walk through that kind of rejection to the cross to save the very people who rejected him. And that is very good news for every one of us. Because no matter how good we look now, no matter how clean we are now, no matter how much of this book we know now, there was a time where we were very, very, very opposed to God. And we needed him to come and love us even as we were actively rejecting him. So that's what happens. And then the story continues on. Jesus doesn't say, yeah, 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 let's light it up. He says, no, that's not the time. This isn't the place. And he says, we're going to go around the city. We're going to go another way. And that's where we end up here, verse 57. Now, most of you have probably not written a paper in a while. You haven't been asked to write a theme. That's what they called it in uh, A Christmas Story. You remember he was so upset because he had to write a theme, but then he's like, oh, I'll do it about a red writer. And now I'm all excited about it. Most of us have not done that. Some of you are in school. Anna, have you written a paper lately? Okay, all right, so it's been a while. Here's my question. I'm going to read to you three stories. They are teeny stories, eight sentences to get all three of them in, 15 seconds per story. If you turned this in to your sixth grade teacher, Miss Sims, Miss Newton, whatever it is, if you turn it into your sixth grade teacher, what are they going to say you did well and what are they going to say you did poorly? Now, I understand I just said, what did God's word do poorly? Obviously, nothing. But there's a point in me bringing this up. What is obvious and what is obviously missing? Three stories. 
as Jesus walks around Samaria. Verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Story number two. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Third story. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. All right, so you turn it into your sixth grade teacher, all eight sentences of it that took 45 seconds for her to read. What are you going to get good marks for? I get the theme. Following Jesus is costly right? It it could cost you home. You may be giving up all sorts of comfort. It could cost you family, propriety. It may even seem like you're not being responsible at times. Following Jesus is costly. It's obvious. That's easy stuff. But what would you get marked off for? What is obviously missing from this story? Who are these people? I went back and looked. There's not an adjective in the bunch, There is no description. There's no like color to it. It's just guy one walked up. I will follow. Here's why you shouldn't. Guy two walks up. I will follow. Here's why you shouldn't. What kind of a story is it? We don't know who these people are. You know what else we don't know? If they followed him. Isn't that like what everyone would want to know as you're reading this story? Did these people say, oh, okay, well, I'll forego comfort if it's you, Jesus, Or did they say, whoa, 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 I can't abandon my family like that. Sorry, Jesus, I'll have to come back to you later. I have other responsibilities to care for right now. Luke gives us none of that. But let's start at what is obvious. All right, note takers, here you go. As we submit to the lordship of Jesus, we increasingly see our comfort becoming inward. You're going to see this. You don't have to get the whole thing down. We increasingly see our comfort becoming inward, our time being spent outward, and our focus becoming upward. And we'll leave that up for just a minute. Midtree Church believes that a disciple of Christ is believing, beholding, believing, and becoming in God. We are beholding who God is, just as the disciples did when Jesus fed 5,000. They are believing in him and who he is, not just that he exists, but believing in who he is as they walk through Samaria and they are personally offended as their Lord is mistreated. And they, we are becoming the men, women, the boys, the girls, the young adults that God is calling us in his word to be and he is relentlessly changing us into Christ if we have put our faith and trust in him. Let's take the first one. As we submit to the lordship of Jesus, we increasingly see our comfort becoming inward. This is story number one. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow. Now that word follow appears in every one of the three stories. In fact, it's the theme that actually ties them together. And when we talk about following, we're not talking about little ducklings with mama. We're saying these people are saying, Jesus, 
you are the son of God or they're saying you are a teacher. There is something uniquely special about you and I am willing to let go of what my life is now because something about you, what you are doing, what you are calling me to seems so much better. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. You'd think Jesus would be pumped about this. Well, let me tell you about our Roots membership class. It's going to be coming up. You can get to know about me. You can follow me. You can get involved in MCG. Jesus cuts right to the quick. And he says this, look, here's the deal. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. I don't have anywhere to put my head. Now, this is coming fresh off of being rejected by the Samaritan. Samaritan. He's walking through, and they're like, no, you don't get to come here. There's no house. There's no bed. There's nothing for you here. He turns. Somebody walks up. And Jesus, as though it is fresh on his mind and heart, the brokenness of people not receiving him, he looks and he says, you need to understand something. Following me is going to cost you some comfort. It's going to cost you not just outside comfort, like a fox gets a hole and you're supposed to have a house, but true Christians don't have nice homes. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that we're glad to give that up if he calls us to go to Lebanon. We're glad to give that up if he calls us to go and live or work in the inner city. Because whatever we have was a gift of his and we will gladly give it back. But I think bigger than that is the fact that Jesus is telling people you're going to be rejected. Like you, the more you become like me, the less you're going to look like this world. The more you love my father, the more this world is not going to love you. So following me doesn't have as much to do with an address as it does with you being able to address the fact that as you grow in Christ, every one of us should expect more rejection. And and, and let's just be quite honest. It's not even as we grow, we are watching our culture become more broken. I do not know how the American gospel got on Netflix. I I do. The grace of God. Like, what? My wife and I were talking about this morning. Like, why did the producers at Netflix even put this? It is so obviously counter. By the way, if you have not seen American gospel, consider this the plug. Make it your quiet time. Make it your whatever it is. Uh, it, It is absolutely wonderful. It's on Netflix right now. The world around us is becoming darker. In a sense, we should rejoice that our light can shine more brightly. Do you know what Christians are doing right now? They're running into Beirut. That's what Christians are doing. And that's our heritage. If you're a Christian, hear me on this, our heritage is walking into mess. If you're a Christian, our heritage is walking into sickness. Our heritage is walking into brokenness. In fact, it's what made us stand out in the gospel spread in the first place. In Rome, right now, I think COVID has killed about 36,000 people. Uh, No, no, no. That's the entire country of Italy. Excuse me. The entire country of Italy has lost about 36,000 people to COVID. In the third century AD, Rome was hit by a plague. They lost 5,000 people a day. They experienced just in Rome in less than a week what the entire country of Italy has experienced in these four months. Can I tell you that people were losing it? Can I tell you that the world was ending for them? And do you know what the Christians did? They walked right in. In fact, the political leaders and the religious leaders of those in Rome began to get upset at their own citizens. They they tried to preach sermons and convict people and create these laws so that their citizens would take care of their citizens, but they wouldn't. 
They saw the sick and they went the other way. But what did the Christians do? They walked into the mess. And you know what happened to a lot of them? They died. A lot of Christians walked in. They would care for the dead bodies because nobody else would touch them. They would give them an honorable burial, even though they didn't even know the person. They would walk in risking their own life, their own health, their own family because of this. They knew if they died, they went to be with Jesus. And they said, what would hold me back? What if me losing my life allows me to bring one of these lost ones into the kingdom of God? And they said, worth it. And they walked right in. I am not preaching that every one of us need to take off our mask and start kissing everybody on the mouth everywhere that we go. To do. But what I am saying is this. When we look at what is happening in our world, are we operating out of faith or out of fear? Some of you may be called to do exactly what you're doing. Some of you may be being called to do significantly more. Some of you may be already doing more, and praise God for that. Christians give up comfort. And we don't just do it once. We do it in an ever-increasing way as the Spirit of God moves in us in an ever-increasing way. Let's look at story number two. As we submit to the Lordship of Jesus, we increasingly see our time being spent outward. To another, he said, follow me. But he, being the man that Jesus was speaking to, said, Lord, there we go. He must be a believer, right? He called Jesus Lord. Lord, let me first. And this is the issue. You see this in the next story, too. You can pan down to verse 61. I will follow you, Lord, let me first. This is the issue. What are your let me firsts for the things that God is calling you to? Are there any? No, no, no. Lord, I, I will be happy to go overseas, or I'll be happy to adopt, or I'll be happy to go have that conversation, or I'll be happy to give to the, I'll be happy to do whatever it is. But first, there are no but firsts in following Jesus. He is first. The moment we say but first, we underlie the fact that he is not actually Lord. To another he said, follow me, verse 59. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus loves family, right? How could he? This is a reasonable request. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What is happening here? In Matthew 15, Jesus busts on some of the Pharisees and scribes. I'm not going to read the entire verse, but basically what was happening is this. Money was saved in their culture to take care of their ailing and aging parents. And these people were taking that money and giving it to the church. All right? They were probably doing it to look good themselves. So they would look at their parents and they would say, all this money, it was called Corbin, giving something to God. All this money that was saved and set aside for your care, I'm going to give to God. You don't have a problem with that, do you? What's a parent supposed to say? No, give me that money. Don't give that money to God. What's wrong with you? And Jesus says that's exactly what they were supposed to say. Because the motivation was wrong. Jesus says, you hypocrites, you should be caring for your family. Then what is happening here? Well, what's happening here is really seen best in verse 60. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus is making a bigger statement than a statement on family. He's making a statement on the eternity of a soul. He's saying somebody who is physically dead no longer needs the ministry of the gospel. They have either been ministered or they have not been ministered by that good message of the cross of Christ. But you are alive. 
and you are believing and surrounding you is a harvest that is white and ready for you to share the good news of who I am. That is your main focus. That is your priority. Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. One of the reasons that seems crazy to us is because we think of a funeral as being like a week, maybe, uh, as you get preparations, but uh, maybe two or three. It was a year for them. It was a year from preparing the body and burying it and then being there to care for things until a year passed and the bones were put in an ossuary. Ossuary? How do I pronounce it? Come on, somebody's smart in this room. Everybody's going to believe you. What is it? It's an ossuary. Thank you, Josh. Somebody look that up and let me know for real, all right? But, but it took a year for them to care, and it was a big deal. Uh, I, I think um, Joseph, in Genesis 50, asked Pharaoh to send him home so that he could care for his family in this way. What is Jesus saying? Don't care for your family? Absolutely not. He's saying there's something bigger even than that, and some of us hide behind our responsibilities to our family. Some of us hide behind being a mom or a dad, being a son or a daughter, a grandma or a granddad. We hide behind that rather than being fully surrendered to Christ. And what I think is most important for every one of us in this room, young world, to know is this. Your family does not need you to be more responsible. Your family needs you to be more surrendered. Now, I intentionally underlined the word more. Your family does need you to be responsible, okay? I, Absolutely yes, but your family doesn't need that more than they need seeing what it looks like for dad to be fully surrendered, surrendered to God. Parents of children who are growing, you know, you know what your parents want to see more than great grades on the report card? Do you know what your parents want to see more than this thing that happened academically or athletically or scoring the next goal? What your parents want to see is that you're more surrendered to Jesus. That's what they want. That has got to be something. And interestingly, every three of, each of these three stories talks about home and family. It starts right at the heart of where we are. But wives, your husband doesn't need you to be more responsible to your duties. He needs you to be more surrendered to Christ. Because you know what happens when a husband is surrendered to Christ and the wife is surrendered to Christ? All of that stuff happens anyway. And it happens with a good attitude. It happens as we're trying to glorify God, not just get brownie points or not get in trouble with our spouse. It happens because we're becoming more like Christ. Third story, verse 61. As we submit to the lordship of Jesus, we increasingly see our focus becoming upward. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. This is barely even a request. How far away from his house was he? He's like, I just want to go and say goodbye. What does Jesus say? No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What a cool little saying, right? Uh, Ellis has been cutting grass lately. If you need your grass cut, I'm sure he would have. There's a little shameless plug for my son who's cutting grass. But I'm teaching him how to do this, right? He, he's just starting to learn. You Sometimes he needs a little help getting the thing going, that kind of a deal. And the first lesson I taught him was the first lesson that I was taught. You want straight lines. Nobody wants a yard that looks like you were just having fun with it, right? They're like, thank you. I guess we're Christians, and this is just how it goes, right? You're the pastor's kid. Not going to be able to. No, 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 no. People want straight lines. How do you get straight lines? You look ahead. You don't look behind. 
You can't look at the work you've already done and been like nailing it. No, 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 no. And all of, do y'all remember driving? Most of us, when we first started driving, we were looking right at the end of the hood of the car. We were like, line, line, line. And it took a little bit of time before we realized, if I would just look up and let the peripheral vision catch the car, I wouldn't look like I drank before I hopped in this vehicle. Right? We all have to learn these things. And Jesus, in telling this person who says, hey, I'm going to follow you. I just want to tell everybody at home, bye, love you, following Jesus, be praying for me. He says, what are you doing looking back? Jesus, how harsh are you being here? Well, Jesus makes a statement, and I find it fascinating because of another story that we read many, many, many years before. This is 1 Kings 19. All right, so just keep this in mind. A guy says, hey, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, if you put your hand to the plow and you look back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. That's the whole story, right? Check out what happened a number of years ago with Elijah. 1 Kings 19, 19. So he departed from there, Elijah did, and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12. So we have Elijah. Who follows after Elijah? Elisha does, right? So what's happening here? Elijah is doing what Jesus is doing. He's saying, hey, you need to come and follow me. And he does it in a cultural way. He puts his cloak on him, which would have been a sign that I'm giving you responsibility. I am giving you this. You should follow me. Verse 20. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. Does this not sound exactly like what we just read in Luke? So what's Elijah going to do? Keep in mind, Elijah's a big deal in the Bible. He shows up early. He shows up in the middle. He shows up in the end. I think last week we read about the Mount of Transfiguration, and Peter's like, I could build a wonderful tent for you, Jesus, and Moses, and Elijah. Big dude, right, in the Bible. What's Elijah going to say? Elijah's going to say exactly what Jesus said, right? Nope. Elijah says, go back again for what have I done to you? What do you mean? Of course you can go back and see your family. And he does. And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them, boiled their flesh, sorry, that's a little gross, kids, with the yokes of oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Why is Jesus talking this way? Because one greater than Elijah is here. That's why. Uh, what, what Jesus wants us to realize more than anything else is that when he gives us a command today, when you hear his voice, it, Christian, who has already responded to the gospel, when God is telling you to go do something or to stay when you want to leave, he means now. Bruner and I were having lunch in the middle, uh, middle of the week, and we were sort of chopping it up over these verses. And he said, isn't it amazing that whenever Jesus gives somebody a command to do, it's always immediate, and there's never like, hey, you can do this tomorrow? I was like, I know that's true, but I've got to think about this. Jesus never did, and it ate at me. So the next day, I picked up my Bible, read the book of Matthew. And, and in the book of Matthew, I found every place where Jesus told somebody to go into. And I, I'm talking like pages. And pa this is all just from the book of Matthew. Pages of Jesus saying, go. You know what he never did? He never said, go do this in a minute. Now, move. That's the way the Holy Spirit works for us. Get moving now. Why? Because souls are on the line. And every moment, People are losing their lives, and they're losing hope, and you have a message of the gospel to share. If you're a Christian, 
The third rotation of MCGs this year is going to be all about evangelism. Uh, Devers, the Gospel and Personal Evangelism, Greg Kokel's Tactics, and other books like this. Why? So that our church is able to grow in being these ministers of Christ. Pray for that. Look forward to that. It'll be our third rotation. Christian, delayed obedience is disobedience. There's no other way to look at it in the gospel. When you know that you are to be obedient to something, delaying it is disobedient. And we know this with our kids because we won't put up with it, right? Go clean your room. Okay, I'm just going to, no, right? Like, like it gets real hot real quick inside. And so I, I look at my kids all the time and I'm like, how do we obey? Daddy, we obey all the way right away. And then after I had about a three-year-old, I was like, we obey all the way right away with a good attitude, all right? That's how, that's how it works. And the, you'll probably hear me say this. That's the exact same with us and God. And what I think that may mean for some of us, especially those of us who are older and have had a longer church history and tradition, we need to be careful about enjoying our nostalgia now rather than in heaven. In heaven, we will have an eternity to look back at the grace of God poured out on us, and we will have an eternity to look into the face of Christ. But now, simply put, we have work to do. I know that you had an incredible Bible study or a wonderful small group or that when the church was like this, it was wonderful. Or when I was 18, I had this guy who mentored me. I know and I get it and we all have that story and we should be pushing for that, but that should never prevent us from saying just because something great happened doesn't mean that God is done. There are more things for us if we would press forward. And then finally, I mentioned to you that there were some things that are obvious. It is obvious that following Jesus is costly. It, it, it changes an awful lot about us, our comfort, our time, and our focus. But isn't it amazing that Luke left this so obscure? We don't know these people. We don't know if they followed him. Actually, we did. You see, when Matthew writes about this story, he tells us one of these men was a disciple. The other was a scribe or a Pharisee not likely to follow Jesus. If we actually knew these things, why would Luke intentionally leave them out? Why would the Holy Spirit in, inspire him to be so obscure? Because all three of those people are us. We are all three of them questioning on the regular, is my time really going to be God's to command? Is my comfort really going to be, is my focus really his to command? And I think that's a question for all of us. Uh, am I going to follow Jesus if I know that tomorrow is covered? Or do I have to say, whether it costs me home and comfort, I'll follow you because you're my daily bread. It, is, it, is it us saying, hey, let me just get my family settled. Let me make sure that I care for them. When Jesus is saying, I'm the one who will care for your family. Follow after me. Is it us saying, I need to get my affairs in line. I need to be responsible. People are looking up to me. I have responsibilities. Or is it us recognizing that Jesus can handle every one of our responsibilities way better than we can? And just saying, you know what? I am surrendered to you. I don't know where you're at. It changes, doesn't it, all the time? How much we are or are not submitting to the Lordship of Christ. But I know that there was a rich young ruler and there was a Zacchaeus. They were both given the same option. Give it all up and follow me. And one of them did and one of them didn't. I, I know that there was a centurion that had great faith and a disciple that walked with Jesus that didn't in Thomas. 
One of them followed lordship. The other didn't, at least not for a time. Daily, we have Mary and Martha. You know, we have Martha who, who is working and working, and Mary who's just wanting to be near Jesus. Their time, their focus. Every day, every moment, we decide. Am I beholding in God, believing in his son, and becoming who has called me to be? God is not done. You've not graduated from the fun, big, hard parts of Christianity. You're not dead yet. You have a mission. You have a savior. You have a calling to be about that calling. It's what the church is. It's what it's always been about. And when we do that, every seeming setback, everything that we have to let go of, always turns out better. Even if like a Christian two millennia ago, we walked into sickness just to see Jesus sooner. It's worth it because he is. Father, I pray for us this morning and I pray for these people that that is who we would be. And I know for a fact we can't do that in and of ourselves. You have to step in. You have to step in and give us a new heart through the work that you did on the cross. Your Holy Spirit has to move in us to renew our mind. But we need that every single day. Truth be told, we need it about a hundred times a day. Are we completely surrendered to Christ? Is our obedience immediate and our trust in him without wavering? That's where joy lives in this world. That's where true comfort is found. That's where our time is best placed and where our focus is most rewarded. God, make us those people that you would be glorified and we would find actual joy. In Christ's name.